what do we think of when we think of the dead of the First World War? We might think of the poppies we pinned to our coats, the memorials in each village and town across Britain, those cemeteries full of graves on the battlefields of the Western Front, or the ritual of going silent for two minutes on Remembrance Sunday every November. In short, we think about rituals that started after the war, official acts of remembrance that began only after the guns had fallen silent. What I want to talk about today is how people felt about the dead while the war was still ongoing, when they didn't know how long the war would go on, or whether they would live to see the end. This was before the Somme, Verdun or Passchendaele, before the tradition of wearing poppies or the two-minute silence had been established and before those war cemeteries across the Western Front had been built. What we know now to be the enormous final death toll of the First World War prompted a contemporary crisis in attitudes towards death. The people living through it recognised it almost immediately. Less than six months into the war, in March 1915, Sigmund Freud noted that, quote, we cannot maintain our former attitude towards death and have not yet discovered a new one. The historian Jay Winter has argued that the nearly 10 million deaths of the Great War represented a, quote, puzzling, unprecedented catastrophe for contemporaries. And the historian David Canadine has even argued that, quote, interwar Britain was probably more obsessed with death than any other period in modern history. We often think of the parents, the sisters, the wives, the girlfriends, the children of the men who died, the people who received a telegram, a knock at the front door, a letter that changed their lives and their families forever. But in this podcast, I want to focus on an entirely different group of mourners, and that's the nurses in hospitals, casualty clearing stations and ambulance trains in the war zones and on the home front. These were the women in the thick of the action experiencing this enormous wave of death at first hand. For many of these voluntary nurses, this was their first time in a hospital. Whereas men were being asked to die in the name of king and country, it was only one sex that Kitchener was pointing at in this famous image. Women were inscribed into pre-war and Victorian gender roles as life givers and caregivers. This role was made explicit in recruiting efforts, such as this graphic American Red Cross poster showing a nurse supporting a wounded soldier with the words, if I fail, he dies. Nurses were simultaneously asked to take on the traditionally female role of primary mourner, which had immediate historical precedent. Women were the primary carers around the 19th century deathbed. What I want to argue today, then, is that the letters, diaries and memoirs of First World War nurses show the efforts of ordinary women to ensure dignity at the moment of death, a very early version of what governments and individuals would be involved in for many years in the post-war period, that is, the drive to commemorate and to memorialise what Samuel Hines has called monument-making. This monument-making process, I want to argue, began to take place as soon as the war began, and the work of nurses was at the very beginning of this process. So what was death like before the First World War? The Victorian period is known for promoting the idea of the good death, where the person dying would be comfortable at home, surrounded by family, 
having said goodbye individually to each family member and having begged forgiveness for their sins. This idea of the good death goes back to the medieval period, when Latin literature, known as the Ars Moriendi, taught people the art of dying well. The good death was reinforced in the Victorian period through fictional deathbed scenes in novels, poems and works of art. In literature, these scenes were usually lengthy, highly sentimentalised passages which were laden with pathos. I'm thinking here of something like the death of Little Nell in Charles Dickens's The Old Curiosity Shop. And the Victorian period is also known for its culture of ostentatious mourning, perhaps aptly represented by its reigning monarch, Queen Victoria, the so-called Widow of Windsor. This culture ranged from elaborate funerals to expensive mourning jewellery. And what I find fascinating is how much of this mourning jewellery is concerned with the body of the loved one, the ring containing a tooth or the jewellery made from the hair of the deceased. We can see how difficult it would have been for wartime families when, in 1916, the British government made the decision not to bring bodies home, meaning that people were left to mourn without a body. In contrast to these idealised Victorian deathbed scenes, or to the scenes of absence on the home front, the deaths depicted by First World War nurses were anonymous, painful, and left a broken or incomplete corpse. In her memoir, Four Years Out of Life, Leslie Smith, a VAD serving in France, records that there was no longer the conclusiveness of death permitted by an entire corpse. Death has its own clean finality, but these men, whose admirable bodies lay inert and helpless at the mercy of a grotesque, obscenely rolling head, seemed a denial of everything beautiful and fair. Comparing these descriptions with the Victorian urge towards realism, the desire that the corpse would look the same in death as it had in life, which we see in popular Victorian memorial photography, we can see how the war was an unexpected assault on traditional aesthetics of death. And it wasn't just that men were dying, it was the numbers of them dying that was also overwhelming. So how did nurses cope with these enormous numbers of deaths? They wrote about them, and to do that they turned back to the long-standing and recognisable trope of the deathbed scene. In another section of her memoir, Leslie Smith wrote about the deathbed of Railton, a young corporal. Railton could hardly move his head, but he lifted his eyes to my face and panted, Sorry to keep you, nurse. I won't be long now. I'm going fast, ain't I? I choked and fumbled stupidly for a word and finally managed to tell him to hold on. There might be a change at any moment. He just brushed that aside and still holding me with his eyes said, I'm frightened, sister. Is it all true what they say in church? His voice had dropped to an agonizing whisper and I had to bend down to catch what he said. Will I be forgiven? I tried to say what he wanted to hear, and he slowly lifted his hand off mine and said, Thank you. I fled down the ward to roll over the amputation's head and prevent him choking himself. The detail in the long description of Railton's death suggests the multiple conflicting pressures on the nurse, 
between general duties and the traditionally personalised attention at a deathbed. This intimate encounter between a nurse and her patient is an attempt to return the reader to the world of the Victorian deathbed, but what the passage actually reveals is that a focus on one patient, even at the moment of his death, was simply impossible to maintain in the wartime hospital. There were just too many men to deal with. But these scenes are an attempt at what I call proto-memorialisation, an effort to impose meaning and dignity on the mass deaths that were occurring before more official modes of commemoration were established. We see a similar individualising gesture in nursing scrapbooks and autograph books. This example from the Yale Centre for British Art shows individual photos of the soldiers treated by Patricia Young, a nurse in a Scottish hospital. Like the nursing memoirs I've been discussing, there's something intensely moving in the way that Young has given the soldiers an individual space on the page, with their name and regiment listed, and included their photo, which she has cut out by hand. We see a further example of what the historian Tom Lacure has termed hypernominalism in the popular Roll of Honour film shown in cinemas on the home front, which presented photographs of dead or missing soldiers and their names as a means of honouring and remembering on a local scale. This process of attempting to personalise the multiple anonymous deaths of war is ongoing today. We might think of the poppy installation at the Tower of London in 2014, where each poppy represented just one death in the war, or the We Are Here memorial on 1st July 2016, the centenary of the first day of the Somme, where ordinary people dressed as soldiers and marched through town centres and railway stations. These are both attempts to make human and understandable the vast, impersonal numbers of deaths of the First World War. Great war nurses were implicitly positioned at the forefront of the debate about death and memorialisation that the war provoked, and they were not only important for their vital medical work, but for their role in the cultural history of death and the ways in which we continue to remember the war dead today. They used the deathbed scene to represent the deaths of men they were nursing, partly because it reflected the reality of what they were experiencing in hospitals, but more importantly because it imposed a meaningful structure on what they were attempting to represent. Giving the men, only a few of very many men, a deathbed scene meant that they were not forgotten. Thank you.